Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 17th, 2015. Now, as promised, we're going to cover uh, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn's obfuscation and this claim that apparently there's some kind of a super Shemitah coming. We're going to blow that out of the water. It's not true. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up our Bible, use sound hermeneutics, good exegesis, a Christ centered approach to Scripture. It's about Jesus, not about you. Proper distinction of law and gospel in order to test to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, uh, and uh, prophecy experts, and uh, those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex is those whom we need to be listening to, those who we, whose books we need to be buying, and whose study materials we need to be studying instead of the Bible when you know we have our small group studies. Yeah, and um, and over and again we find that when we test what these messages are being, you know, are that are being put forward by these most popular people, it doesn't square with God's word like at all. In fact, it's egregiously off is a good way to put it. So, um well, the Shemitah's come and gone. The uh, Elul 29 has come and gone. And of course, did anything happen? No. Nope, nope. And of you know, and now Jonathan Kahn is basically saying, well, nothing had to happen. And you know, I find this to be a convenient argument. And you're going to hear it for yourself. He was on the 700 Club yesterday. And uh, basically saying nothing had to happen. But, of course, if something had happened, he would have said, Shemitah, nothing happens. And, oh, no, no, it doesn't mean I'm wrong. It just means that we're not putting God in a box. Yeah. It, it's absolutely ridiculous. And unfortunately, um, you know, the liberal media is paying attention to this. The uh, liberal you know, media outlet, uh, Right Wing Watch. And, you know, I am no fan of anything that appears on that website at all. Uh, but I got to tell you, you know, they're calling bovine scatology when it comes to Jonathan Kahn and the... Uh, and the Shemitah, and of course, World Net Daily, you know, they spent a lot of time, a lot of uh, digital ink talking about uh, the uh, the Shemitah, of course, so did Jim Baker and others. 
and uh, nothing happened. Absolutely nothing happened. And, of course, Jonathan Kahn was on uh, the 700 Club yesterday, and Pat Robertson gave him the opportunity to basically save his bacon. And um, uh, let's just put it this way. It was artful obfuscation. And uh, in watching his, uh, his appearance on the 700 Club yesterday, the only thing I could think to myself is Jonathan Kahn is what William Tapley would be. If William Tapley had any chops, yeah, that's, but they're basically cut from the exact same cloth. Um, William Tapley and Jonathan Kahn have a lot in common. Um, and, you know, their, their, their approach to biblical analysis and eschatological prophecy, you know, uh, projecting, you know, things like that. I, I mean, and then looking for the prophetic significance and all kinds of things. I mean, these two are cut from the exact same cloth. Uh, it's just that uh, Jonathan Kahn is way more believable, w- way more charismatic, and carries himself a lot better than William Tapley. William Tapley, I mean, he's hapless. But one of the reasons why we play William Tapley's segments here is so that you can spot the similarities. And and that's the idea, is, is that what William Tapley does so miserably uh, other people do better than him, and then what happens is is that people listen to those people and think William Tapley's a nut, but in reality, William Tapley is exactly like Jonathan Kahn, exactly like him. Anyway, so we're we're going to do an extended analysis on uh, <laughs> on Jonathan Kahn's attempts to uh, to save his bacon on the 700 Club, and we'll do a little fact-checking along the way. And like I said, we're going to b- take this idea of a super Shemitah, and we are going to blow the lid off that thing. Yeah, one, one of the things that happened early this year is that Jonathan Kahn appeared on one of these prophecy television programs. And, uh, in fact, the name of the, uh, the, uh, the television program is Lion and Lamb Ministries, Lion and Lamb Ministries. And uh, this is uh, Dr. David Reagan and Nathan Jones's uh, television program where they cover prophetic uh, topics. And they interviewed Jonathan Kahn. And Dr. Reagan, let's just put it this way, he let the cat out of the bag as, as far as like the major weakness of the, uh, the, of the book, the, uh, you know, Mystery of the Shemitah. And that is it's based upon the Jewish calendar created by the rabbinic Jews after the fall of Jerusalem, and it omits at least 250 years. And many people have uh, you know, speculated as to the reason for their omission being in order to make it so that Jesus could not fulfill the uh, prophecy in Daniel of the 70 weeks. So, um, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating, which be- then kind of blows the lid off this thing. No one knows with certainty what years the Shemitah years are. And nobody knows, in fact, and then nobody knows. Ain't nobody knowing when the Jubilee is. And the, and the Jubilee is uh, the, the, apparently when the super Shemitah is. So we're going to interweave, if you would, uh Jonathan Kahn's appearance on the 700 Club yesterday with his appearance on Dr. Reagan's program in uh, January, early part of January of this year. And uh, and you'll see that you know the facts just don't line up. And then we'll actually do a little fact-checking regarding um, the major 
economic crashes, uh, and, you know, greatest uh, one-day point losses in the, um, in, you know, in the U.S. stock market. And I have the data right here. In fact, I'm going to reproduce these at, uh, at Fighting for the Faith with this episode of Fighting for the Faith. And you're going to see something here, and that is, is that one of the claims, you know, that the, the greatest stock market crashes occur in seven-year cycles, <clears throat> not true. <laughs> Absolutely not true. Um, yeah, I <laughs> looking at the dates here. Yeah, that's you know we got a bunch of uh, Shemitah year ones because uh, some of the biggest uh, one day point losses uh, that occurred all happened in two thousand eight. We got one, two, three, four, five of the top ten point losses all happened in uh, the year two thousand and eight, and they were all over the map as far as what day uh, they they happened on. Uh, then you've got one uh, big day uh, loss in 2001, but then you got 2011, the year 2000, and the year 1997. Now, there is a big point loss a day in 1987, but it's not on a little 29. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about that anyway. So, uh, we, you know, we do, we're going to do some fact checking regarding, you know, when stock market crashes occur. Is it always in conjunction with the Shemitah? Answer. Not even close. So, yeah, all I can say is buckle in. And then time permitting, um, we may not even be able to get to this today. Time permitting, we're going to uh, do a Beth Moore update, yeah, get part two of her Unity for the Sake of Unity teaching that she's been up to. And then in hour number two, we're going to be uh, doing a, uh, a, a Bethel Church uh, sermon. We're going to be listening to and reviewing a sermon by Bill Johnson. And boy, is it really bad. Um, and it's just steeped in NAR uh, type of theology. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. We have a lot of ground to cover. And so since we're going to be doing you know, some Shemitah debunking, that requires us to do this. Folks, uh, yesterday, like I said, uh, uh, Jonathan Kahn appeared on the 700 Club to talk about the end of the Shemitah. And like we've been reporting, nothing happened on a little 29. Apparently, the stock market hasn't received the message from God that they're supposed to crash and wipe out. Is you know, just wipe. That's what's supposedly supposed to happen. And um, it, it well, in fact, let me do this real quick here. I want to check to see 
where the market closed today. Let's take a look at Google. Uh, yeah, well, it it dropped. Yeah, it dropped 65 points today, but it was up quite a bit yesterday. Um, yeah, so uh, we, we've had a little dip in the market, folks. Uh, that's all we can say. But, I mean, far from a wipeout. I mean, 65 points is only 0.39. Uh, you know, it's like one-third of one percentage point, you know, drop in the market. So, Anyway, yeah, you know, apparently it hasn't received the uh, important you know message from God that it's supposed to wipe out and you know judge the finances of the United States of America. And by the way, even if it happened tomorrow or next week, if there was a major one-day point loss, that does not mean it has anything to do with the Shemitah. And the reason why is the Shemitah's over. And so let's um, let's now listen in as uh, Pat Robertson lobs softball questions to uh, Jonathan Kahn so that he can save face after the whole Shemitah fear-mongering uh, what resulted not in the judgment of God, but nothing at all. Here we go. Last week, uh, the good friend Jonathan Kahn told us about the mystery of the Shemitah. You probably didn't understand what that was all about. It's that that's every seven years, the Bible calls for a Sabbath rest. And that year is called the Shemitah. On the last day of the Shemitah uh, of years past, we've seen massive drops in the stock market. The most recent Shemitah ended this past Sunday. So, right, Jonathan is here, and I want to say, Jonathan, did it happen or not? <laughs> well, th- great to be back. And I, I just you. want to say something, because we usually say this privately, but but it's the seven days of blaze here. And yes. I came to the Lord during the seven days of blaze uh, watching the 700 Club. Uh-huh. So he's not answering the question. He's uh, instead buttering up the host. We continue. Throughout that time, as a Jewish person, that was helping me to come to the Lord during the seven days of blaze. Well, we were so, honoring Israel. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. praise so, God. Yeah, so I want to, you know, people don't know that, but that's yeah. just the many, many things well, that I come from the ministry. I'm thrilled to hear that. Yeah, um, well, here's the thing. Okay, the last thing I said when we were here last right. week is, is, you know, and I've said this from the beginning, is nothing has to happen. At, at, you can't put God in a box because yeah. he'll get out of it. You know? so, uh, so there you go. There's the end. There's the answer. Why didn't anything? Well, nothing had to happen because we can't put God in a box. But if something did happen, that would approve the Shemitah theory. But if nothing happens, that doesn't prove he's wrong. It just means we can't put God in a box. In other words, there is no way to disprove Jonathan Kahn's theory regarding the you know judgments of God falling on the Shemitah. Because if it doesn't happen, it just means that we're piously, we can't put God in the box. Nothing was, you know, you can't promise that something was going to happen. But if something did happen, everyone would have been saying, Shemitah, Shemitah. Yeah, there's no way to disprove this at all. That's a con. So, so the thing is, so, but, so the, the stock market wasn't open on Sunday, so you can't really have a crash. But the interesting thing is that what's happened with the Shemitah is there's several templates in the book of how the different ones have come in the last uh, 40 and 50 years. Mm-hmm. This one has, you know, two of them have had a crash on a little 29, but the others have a different pattern, and that's what this has done. This has followed the pattern of this. The, when the Shemitah's happened, the last, the last cycles is what's happened is that before the Shemitah come that last day, there's the stock market, which has been ascending. Yes. The Shemitah changes that direction and it begins descending. Right. Mm. So the Shemitah comes in all kinds of forms. So when the Shemitah comes, the market that was ascending 
is now going to descend. So, uh aha. So there's all kinds of different patterns that God apparently follows regarding, um, you know, Shemitanic judgments on the uh, U.S. economy, which kind of begs the question. uh, And that is, is that anybody who's familiar with the stock market knows that the stock market goes up, the stock market goes down. But overall, it continues to go up. And, you know, and what I find fascinating here is, is that in this theory that apparently God is judging uh, the economy of the United States in tandem with and in conjunction with the Shemitah is my question is, is then how does he explain all of the rises and major point gains and rallies, you know, the uh, the uh, bull markets, if you would, not the bear markets, but the bull markets uh, that we've experienced, you know, for the last 40 years. I mean, go back to the Reagan administration and, uh, you know, when he turns the economy around with his uh, economic plan, I mean, the United States goes into this just huge, you know, year after year after year of sustained growth. You know, um, how does how does the Shemitah play into that? If God is judging the United States, you know, in ta- in conjunction with the Shemitah, should we then assume that when we have a bull market that God is blessing the United States? And you'll notice that there's been a lot of bull markets since uh, the Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, yeah, and you know, and the United States, I mean, economically is just just grown by leaps and bounds since uh, the Roe v. Wade decision. How does he explain that? Well, mm-hmm. this happened started at, in the summer. This is following the pattern of, of 1987 Shemitah, which is exactly it's almost following the same trajectory. What's happened? I was just told today um, that this Shemitah of this year has wiped away two trillion dollars of the U.S. stock market and five trillion dollars of the of the world oh, stock market. Yeah. So it has it has followed the same thing of the of the major pattern. So mm-hmm. that still happened. The other thing is and. Yeah, I'd like to see your source on that. Yeah, yeah, we we've had a downturn in the market, but the wiping out of trillions of dollars. Hmm. And and the other thing is that this period now is called the Shemitah's wake, when sometimes you have the greatest crash called the Shemitah's wake. Who, who where in the Bible does it talk about the Shemitah's wake? Answer: Nowhere. The Shemitah's wake is a theory that Jonathan Kahn concocted is coming here. You have it in the last time. So we'll see. Mm. But it has already followed that trajectory of the general pattern. The other thing is that when we were on the air last yeah, time, yeah. Um, we, uh, you were saying, I was saying, you know, the stock market's not open that day. I said, but the sh- word to means shaking. I said, you can also have a shaking of the earth. And mm. you- yeah, now this is, this is fascinating. Okay, this is what we call um, the uh, illegitimate totality, uh, totality transfer error. I forget. It, yeah, it, it, the idea here is is that he's pouring into the word Shemitah every possible dic- dictionary definition. Illegitimate totality transfer is the name of the error. And so the, the Shemitah could be, it could mean release, it could mean shaking, it can mean this, it can mean that. And so he's basically assigning for every dictionary definition of the word Shemitah uh, different uh, judgments from God. So it, it can also mean shaking. And of course, we all know that there was a big earthquake in Chile yesterday. So that has to be tied with the Shemitah, right? No, the Shemitah ended on a little 29. You said, well, what do you, do you mean earthquake on that day? I said, well, that can be. Yeah. Well, 
what people don't realize, on Sunday, September 13th, the day of the Shemitah, which also means shaking, an earthquake struck. There was a shaking here, and the and it struck the California Gulf 6.6 on the Richter scale. So we mm. said this last week. Uh, California Gulf? Um, yeah, that would that would um, be in Mexico, not the United States. Okay, and it's not saying that, I'm not saying that's the great shaking, but that could that be a sign of something coming? But that could that be? Could that be all speculation? She happened on the day of shaking. The other thing about happening with Ishmita uh, is that we touched on the last time is that America mm-hmm. um, has been the strongest economic power for since 1871. Mm-hmm. With this last Shemitah, this has now changed. The American age of the strongest power has changed. The word Shemitah means fall. So it is no longer. So, you- so it means release. It means fall. It means shaking, illegitimate totality transfer. Just take every def- dictionary definition and just start assigning things. By the way, with uh, the Chinese, I mean, with how many how many billions of people they have uh, in China – and you know it's just a matter of time with that many people that their their overall economy is going to be greater than the United States. I mean that's I mean people have been forecasting that for decades. You have several things, but it has in effect followed that same trajectory, and we'll see in the days to come. There's still you know there's the seventh shemitah coming up. There's a prophetic thing coming up as well. What is the seventh shemitah? Yeah, the seventh shemitah. This is the one we're going to pay attention to. Listen to this. The, the seventh shemitah is this: that mm-hmm. every seven years was a shemitah, but every seventh. Shemitah yeah. ushered in a super Shemitah called the Jubilee. Right. We- All right. So there you go. The super Shemitah called the Jubilee. So it, this is where he's talking about this so-called super Shemitah. We'll let him pl- talk for just a little bit, and then we will take a listen to his interview from January of this year uh, with Dr. Reagan. And uh, you'll you'll realize that there ain't no such thing as a super Shemitah and uh, if there were, we don't know when it is. And that's by his own admission. But we'll let him spin this out for just a little bit. Yeah. And at Jubilee, the main thing is restoration. Everyone mm-hmm. shall return to their own home. Whatever you lost, you get it back. You return right. to your home. Well, well, here's the thing. Could this, um, you know, Israel has lost its home 2,000 mm-hmm. years ago, right. lost its land. And we know, according to end-time prophecy, they had to come back. So this is, this is a, an end-time restoration. Could the mystery of the, the Jubilee or the Seventh Shemitah actually give us the key of when end time events happen, and the amazing answer is yes. Ah, so okay, so the super shemitah, this jubilee, is the key to understanding end time events and stuff like that. Well, uh, we've got a problem, and our problem is that um, this doesn't actually square with what Jonathan Kahn has admitted publicly regarding the jubilee. So, in other words, the super shemitah. Mm-hmm, yeah, this is his, one of his escape clauses, if you would. And so for this next segment, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to uh, whirl up uh, the uh, DeLorean and we're going to have to go back in time to earlier this year so that we can listen to what Rabbi Jonathan Kahn said regarding the Jubilee. But before we do that, we're going to take our first break so we can do our time travel without any interruptions. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we'll be traveling back in time to January of this year to hear what Jonathan Kahn said regarding the year of Jubilee and the so-called super Shemitah. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Without new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're gonna be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh, This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Down, click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Warning, as you're about to find out, ain't nobody know when the Jubilee is. In other words, there's no such thing as a super Shemitah. People putting that out are conning you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, we're kind of now whirl up the uh, Fighting for the Faith uh, flux capacitor on our uh, uh, DeLorean here. Hang on, that requires me to, to do this. All right, there's our flux capacitor. And I need to put in a date here. We're going to put in the date of January... 25th, 2015 is uh, the, the year that we're going to go. Got to make sure we got today's date correctly put in. There we go. Yep, that's today's date. All right, so our time circuits are whirled up. We're ready to go here. And so now we are ready to head out to the future, which requires us to get to 88 miles an hour. Hold on a second here. Let me turn the car on. Here we go. (laughs) That re-entry is always just a little bit off. Anyway, all right. So there we go. We are now... Back in the early part of this year, in uh, January uh, January 25th, 2015, and uh, Jonathan Kahn appeared uh, with Lion and Lamb Ministries. He appeared with uh, Dr. David Reagan and Nathan Jones and was discussing the Shemitah and uh, even took some time to address the arguments of his critics, if you would. 
and uh, regarding the Shemitah. And it's here in this uh, long segment that we're going to be looking at that Jonathan Kahn actually is challenged by Dr. Reagan regarding the year of Jubilee and the Jewish calendar that Jonathan Kahn is using. So let me go ahead and start the uh, interview. We'll pick it up at you know at literally about 16 minutes into the interview when he, uh, they change uh, the topic and actually talk about the uh, Shemitah. And uh, Nathan will, uh, will get us rolling here. Here we go. Christ and Prophets in our interview with Jonathan Kahn, a Messianic rabbi from New Jersey who's been anointed to proclaim a message of warning our nation. He's been anointed, huh? So God anointed him. That would make Jonathan Kahn one of the Christoi. Uh, yeah, uh, Scripture, Jesus warns us about false Christs. That would be anointed ones. And I would say Jonathan Kahn definitely would qualify now as a false Christ since he's allowing himself to be put forward in the public as one who is anointed by God to basically be giving the message that he's giving, which is not true. But we continue. Jonathan, let's turn to your second book called The Mystery of the Shemitah. Yes. Shemitah, right. Could you define what Shemitah means? Well, Shemitah was the Sabbath year. Every seven years, God said, you shall rest. Sabbath year, there's no buying, no selling of the fruits of the land, no reaping, none of that. The whole land would rest. And on the last day of the Shemitah, there was a special day called in Hebrew Elul 29. That's the 29th day of the month of Elul. On that day, something really extraordinary happened. All debts are wiped out. All credits wiped out. The financial realm is wiped clean every seven years. Wow. This was to be a blessing. But the thing is that as Israel turned away from God, the Shemitah comes back at them, not as a blessing, but as a sign of judgment on a nation that has known God, driven God away, and now comes back, strikes the... Yeah, the Shemitah is not the judgment. God judged them for their idolatry, and then when they were in exile, the time of their exile was determined according to the number of Shemitahs that they did not actually observe, and the land ended up resting for 70 years sustenance, their economics, their financial realm. And it comes back in 586 BC. When, when, remember, when the judgment came on Israel, Babylon comes in. They are taken out into captivity for 70 years. And they say, why 70 years? God says, because the land now will rest for 70 years for the 70 Sabbaths or the Shemitahs that they didn't observe. It says that even in the Torah. It says that this will come about as a sign of judgment on you. Mm-hmm. So it actually becomes a sign of judgment now. And that's where we get into That's where the link is with the harbinger. Next. Now remember, this is January 25th of this year. What, uh, Leviticus 25.5, you are not to reap what grows by itself from your crop or harvest the grapes of your intended vines. It must be a year of complete rest for the land. So every seven years then, the Jews weren't supposed to farm. Right. They were supposed to forgive all debt. How did they live? Uh, to, well, God said, I'll bless you on the sixth year. I'll bless you with extra if you do this. Okay. In fact, in Israel today, they're actually observing it. I mean, they? It, okay. sometimes they have loopholes. They, they, you know, <laughs> they have big they... loopholes like hiring Arabs to run their land. Yeah, well, or they actually, they actually sell their land to non-Jews, and then they can work it. Then they buy it back at the end. I mean, you know, it's, it's difficult. But, but actually, they've said that those who have actually done it, have observed it, they have testimonies of that they were blessed. You know? okay. well, the point is, yeah. So that's the beginning of it. But it's not, let me, it's not... The, the Shemitah, some people have confused that with, with what – I'm not saying America is to do this any more than with the Harbinger or that it's about the law of the Shemitah. It's the Shemitah as a prophetic sign. Okay. Well, let's, yeah. let's get into yeah. that for a moment. Uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the criticisms that's already been made of the book is how in the world can you take a law that God gave to the uh, Jewish nation right. and apply it to Gentiles? Right. Exactly. Well, first of all – Yeah, considering the fact that God explicitly states in Deuteronomy 15 – that the Gentiles are not subject to the Shemitah. 
starting from the the other thing we spoke about with the harbinger, everything in the Bible is a, is you know is has a is for us as well. It doesn't mean we're under something, but there's there's meaning in it. Uh, uh, hang on a second here. Yes, it's true that all of Scripture has meaning. That there, you know, that we can learn from the Scripture. That does not mean that you know that that then somehow validates or exonerates you in your application of the Shemitah to the United States economy. And the reason for that is is that uh, if you're going to say that it that God is going to use the Shemitah as a prophetic sign to the United States of America then um, you, you've got to prove from sound biblical exegesis that that is a valid application of God's Word in this case. So just saying that, that, there's, that God's Word is applicable to us today, which it is, doesn't mean that it's applicable in this way. Secondly, it's not the Shemitah as a observing. It never said that. And I've seen some things that say, well, Jonathan said, absolutely not. Uh, not not at all. It's the Shemitah as a prophetic sign. When the Shemitah came... Uh, again, w- what, using sound biblical hermeneutics and exegesis, would lead you to believe that the Shemitah is now somehow, it can be applied as a prophetic sign to a nation or to the world or whatever? Prophetic sign of judgment on Israel. When they were 70 years... It, it, God says it exactly. This is the timing of the Sabbaths of the land that they did not observe. Now the land is going to rest. Well, that involved Babylon. That, the, the rise of Babylon had to happen according to that timing. That had a fall and Persia had to rise up so that the 70 years would be the 70 years. They could go back to the land. So it affects, so even world history. Yeah, but I don't see how that applies to Gentile nations. I mean, we're not supposed to let the land rest. We're not commanded to let the land rest. So why? Right. David Reagan being kind of a voice of reason here. Would this apply? To it's not about, okay. It's not, I'm not telling people to observe the Shemitah. That's not what this is. That's not right. what it's saying that God can use, just as he used the Shemitah as a sign of judgment on Israel, a nation that had turned away. Yeah, just saying God can use does not prove that God is using. If you're going to prove that God is using the prophetic sign of the Shemitah, you're going to have to build a rock solid case. Because, and I mean this, because you're bringing God into it, and to bring God into it when he is not using it as a prophetic sign is to blaspheme his name and to speak lies in his name, which is a very dangerous thing to do. God, the, the message of the Shemitah is that all your blessings come from God. If you turn, if you go away from, you go away from God. That therefore the blessings will be removed. Now the point is, and the same with the harbinger, is that that God can use a sign from the Bible to speak. Now let me give you again saying God can use is different than saying that God is using. So you speak out of both sides of your mouth. You're you're double minded. On the one hand, you're very careful to say God can, you know, what if, and things like that. But on the other hand, you make it sound like, well, this is exact, and the judgments are getting bigger. This is how you talk. You talk out of both sides of your mouth. Example with it with this. Uh, one of the things is that you have the day Alul 29. That is the day when all debts and credit is wiped out. Well, here you have America, and, and we talked about the warning before that if America turns away from God, its blessings will be removed. Well, you have on... 2001, you have 9-11. On uh, several days later, you have the greatest collapse of the financial realm. Wall Street it collapses. Wall Street collapses on September 17th, greatest collapse. When did that take place? It happens on 
the day appointed in the Bible, Elul 29, that says that the day of wiping away financial accounts, wiping away the financial realm, happens on the exact day down to the hour. Then, and not just the day, not just Elul 29 once a year, it's the once in seven year time. Uh, exactly, it's one day in seven years. Then, fast forward to 2008. We just had the Great Recession. You have the greatest collapse happens on September 29th. That is the greatest collapse to this day. It surpassed the one in 2001. Happens on a little 20, happens on September 29th. When? On the exact same day appointed in the Bible as, a, as the day of Elul 29 happens exactly, according to the, the, law, the mystery of the Shemitah, happens exactly seven, seven years apart, the two greatest crashes, down to the day, down to the minute, down to the second. The two greatest crashes on the same day that happens. Now that's two dates. Now, by the way, I have in my hand right here um, a, a spreadsheet. Printout of the largest daily point losses, uh, the top 20 in the, in the United States stock market. And I'm going to point something out here, that in the year 2008, there are a lot of single-day point losses. Uh, in fact, you know, there's, this is the top 20. Let me count this up. For 2008 alone, there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5... Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. That's right. There are eleven of the greatest single-day point losses of the top twenty. Eleven of them occur in two thousand and eight. And I'm going to point this out. It's not as if the large one, you know, the uh, the September twenty ninth, two thousand and eight, which would be a little twenty nine. Um, is is somehow some kind of an outlier. It really isn't. In fact, let me read to you some of the other uh, major point losses in 2008. October 15th, 733 point loss. December 1st, December 1st, 679. October 9th, 678. And then you go down to October 22nd, 514. October 7th, 508. Uh, September 15th, 504. November 5th, 486. Uh, September 17th, 449 point loss. November 20th, 444. Uh, then you got, uh, you've got uh, November 6th, 443. You kind of get the idea here is that basically 2008 was a major catastrophe financially. And then the, the point loss that uh, happened in uh, 2001 is directly the result and the impact of the 9-11 attack. It doesn't necessarily represent some kind of natural market fluctuation. So the idea here is, is that uh, connecting a dot between 2001 and 2008, 2008 was truly a financially unstable and major market correction. And you, you have 11 of the top 20 uh, you know, daily point losses all in 2008, and troubles began uh, you know, as early as the early part of September, and they continued all the way through no, uh, October, November, and on into uh, December. And if you remember, what was what was driving all of that? It was the mortgage market. Remember all those really easy to get mortgages? You can get, you know, no proof mortgages, and it, the whole housing bubble just came flying apart. So, two, you know, so, but like I said, 
2001, that was not a normal market fluctuation. That was an attack caused by an attack on the United States you know, against the World Trade Center. So connecting the dots between the two uh, you know, doesn't make a lot of sense. But then the thing is, is that prior to that, you have 1994. What was the big crash in 1994? There wasn't a big crash in 1994. What was the big crash in uh, in uh, 1987? Well, um, I think this is kind of fascinating, and I, I want to make a point here, and that is is that much of the research that, that I've been able to put together on this is uh, as a result of an article put together by Showbot.com, uh, Showbot, and I'll put a link to that article so that you can actually see some of this other stuff yourself, and I want to make sure that they get credit for the uh, the work that they've done here, but um, let me read to you uh, what it's what the... <clears throat> On September 23rd, 1987, which would be Alul 29, uh, here's what the New York Times wrote regarding the stock market on Alul, uh, September 23rd, 1987. The stock market surged higher, propelling the Dow Jones Industrial Average to its biggest single-day point gain ever. The sudden 75.23-point surge in the Dow uh, stunned traders and analysts alike. Yeah, so a little 29, you know, uh, that would that would be September 23rd, 1987. Yeah, there was a huge surge and a big point gain on that day. Um, and I think it's important to note here that it, of the uh, top 10 largest daily point losses, top 10 largest daily point losses, uh, 1987 does not show up in the uh, top 10. It is number 14, by the way. It is number 14. There was a 508-point uh, loss on October 19th, 1987, clearly long after the Shemitah. Shemitah ended on a little 29, which would be September 23rd. So the idea here is, is that you just start doing the research. You know, Is it true that uh, large crashes in the market are keyed to the Shemitah? No, <laughs> no, not at all, which kind of then begs the question, what are the uh, the large bull markets keyed to if they're not, you know, what, you know, why would God be blessing us? You know, it doesn't, again, none of this makes any sense at all when you start fact checking. And since, you, like you heard it, you heard it that, uh, you know, uh, Jonathan Kahn is supposedly a man anointed to prophetically be speaking these things. Yet, yet, um, when you start doing the fact checking to see what what is he, you know, what are, are the claims that he's making true? The answer is no; they aren't true at all. But we continue to be that. On top of that, Dave. On top of that, and this is after that. You know, this begins in the harbinger. When I looked, was, there is a pattern that goes beyond that. That when you look at the greatest collapses in Wall Street history there is a there they all of them the last last 40 years every every one of the greatest long-term collapses happens clustered around the year of the Shemitah every uh, again not factually true let me give you number six in the list of the, the largest daily point losses that would be August 8th 2011 not a Shemitah year uh, number seven, April 14th of the year 2000, not a Shemitah year. Um, the eighth largest crash is uh, found in uh, 1997. 
That would be uh, August, uh, October 27th. Again, not a Shemitah year. Number nine, uh, that would be uh, August 10th, 2011, not a Shemitah year. Number 11 in the list, August 4th, 2011, not a Shemitah year. Number 12 on the list for greatest day, one-day point losses, August 31st, 1998, 512 points in one day, not a Shemitah year. So um, his claim is when you just do the fact-checking, it's not, what he's saying is not true. It's just not true. And like I said, I will reproduce this with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. You can find it. With today's episode, which is Thursday, September 17th, 2015, and uh, we'll put these up there as long as well as the link to the Showbot article, uh, which is, uh, the, you know, the people at Showbot are the ones who, you know, help me track down all this information to put today's program together. And uh, again, just do the fact checking. The claims that he's making are patently false and objectively verifiable as not true. One of them, they are, they are, they are seven years apart. Even for the one from before, the one after. Yeah, you can go down the list. It's a continual pattern. In fact, Wall Street people on Wall Street have always been mystified. Why do these greatest crashes generally happen around autumn? If you know, well, they happen. They all cluster. The majority of the greatest day crashes cluster around the Hebrew month of Tishri. That's that's October, September, October. That's the very now. If if William Tapley were saying these words. You would spot it for what it is, just complete nonsense. But again, William Tapley talks exactly like this. None of this makes any sense, biblically. I'm in the Bible that is linked to the Shemitah when God says this happens. Well, one of the problems I have with this, as you well know, Mm -hmm. the Jewish calendar is a mess. Mm -hmm. It's a mess. Mm -hmm. I mean, Now, here's the part where you learn that there is no such thing as a super Shemitah. And Jonathan Kahn is going to confirm this. Listen in. Uh, it's lacking about 250 years that should be in there because the uh, sages, uh, short-term, uh, short the Persian rule. They, they put it down for about 52 years, and it was over 200 years. So the whole calendar is off. They don't know when the Jubilee years are. How do they know when the Shemitah well, is interesting, off? interesting. Cause I- yeah, and now, this is where it gets really interesting. Keep in mind, all of Jonathan Kahn's calculations are based upon a calendar that is defective where there's a gap, a missing gap of about 250 years. This is absolutely true. The Jubilee is part of this thing, too. So how, uh, you yeah, well, never explained well, that in well, your book yeah. as to how they determined that these years are the Shemitahs. Well, these were, well, first of all, the well, first thing is... Yeah, how do you know these are the Shemitahs? Uh, we know that the, the Shemitahs were observed. The Jubilees were not, were not... There's a gap as far as their observance in the time of Messiah. Yeah, he's fast-talking now. Um, yeah, there's a gap. Very hard to, to figure out anything with the Jubilee. But there is very hard to figure out anything regarding the Jubilee. In other words, we don't know when the Jubilee is. But the other thing is that with the Shemitahs, though, they were observed in the time of Messiah. They were observed. They are recorded by Josephus. They are recorded by, in, in the rabbinical writings, they are recorded. And, the, you, and, by, and simply, so what they did is simply taking the observances which were there in the times, of the, in Bible times, they continue out and they fall on these exact times. Well, I would argue that this, I would say that the Shemitahs, were were non-observant during the 
uh, years, the 1800 years that the Jews were out of the land, that they only apply to the Jews being in the land. The Jews repossessed the land in 1948. That's when the Shemitah count should begin. Okay, now notice here, this is an important thing that you just heard David Reagan say. The Jews in exile, in the dispersion, they did not follow the Shemitah. For how many years? 1,800 years. And so David Reagan is making the claim that, well, if we're going to talk about Shemitah years, we need to we need to reset the Shemitah clock back to when Israel be, officially became a nation. Let's see if Jonathan Kahn agrees with this resetting of the Shemitah clock, because here's the thing. He's making a big deal about the Shemitahs and the super Shemitah. Yet, nobody knows. Nobody knows with certainty what days, what years those those things fall on now. And the calendar put together by the rabbinic Jews has a gap of 250 years. Uh-huh. And so David Reagan says, well, we're going to reset the Shemitah clock to back when Israel became a nation. Let's see what, what Jonathan Kahn says. 1948. That's well, when they possessed the well, land. Well, let me say something here. Jonathan. Jonathan let, 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 first of all, first of all, the first one would be 5455. Well, well, actually, that's when actually that's when you have nationhood. But the fact is, as soon as they started returning in the 19th century, that is when they started farming the land. Uh, and that's what. No, listen. But they didn't possess it. Okay. <laughs> in any case, they, that's when they went to the rabbis and say, "How do we do this?" That's when they started. Well, I just think this but, is very but, arbitrary, Jonathan. Well, yeah, it is. That's exactly right. The whole thing is very. Arbitrary. So, David Reagan says we the Shemitah clock needs to be reset to you know 1948 when Israel becomes a nation again. Jonathan Kahn says no 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 we need to do it when they started farming the land in the 19s in the 90s and yeah. In other words, um, the mystery of the Shemitah is well it's it's a bigger mystery than you you even realize. It's so mysterious. We don't even know for sure what days, what years are actually the Shemitah years. Uh-huh. Should it be keyed to when Israel became a nation, 1948, or when they repossessed the land? When should, you know, when should the Shemitahs be observed? And, you know, what years do we know we can, we can expect God's judgment? Oh, and by the way, the Jubilee, <laughs> yeah, we don't know what year the Jubilees are on at all. It's lost. There's, it's totally lost. So Jonathan Kahn on CBN, the 700 Club, was saying that, well, hey, you know, we have the Super Shemitah coming up. Failing to tell Pat Robertson and to uh, tell the world that the reality is this, is that uh, we don't actually know what year um, the Shemitah falls on. Nope. Uh, failing to let everybody know that uh, when you just do a little fact-checking regarding the stock market, you find that the uh, greatest market crashes in, uh, in U.S. Uh, stock market history don't actually cluster around uh, the uh, Shemitah. 
um, as if we can even know what year the Shemitah is at all. And then, then Jonathan Kahn coming up with this idea of the super Shemitah tied to the Jubilee when he know, full well knows we don't know when the Jubilees are. Oh, he's playing fast and loose now with the facts. In other words, this whole thing is bogus. It's absolutely bogus. It, it doesn't, you know, the, the history of the stock market doesn't jive with his theory. He doesn't know which years are the Shemitah years, and he absolutely does not know when the Jubilees are. <laughs> the so-called super Shemitah. This whole thing falls down. It's a house of cards. It's utterly total speculation and the theory of the mind of Jonathan Kahn. That's what this is. Just utter nonsense. So let's go fast forward back now and let's re-listen now. We'll listen to uh, the, uh, the another portion of Jonathan Kahn's appearance on the 700 Club. And why are we going to listen to this? Because He's he's trying to save face, uh, you know, because everybody's pointing out nothing happened on a little 29. God didn't judge the U.S. economy and cause it to tank. And so why is that, Jonathan? And of course, like I said, there's no way to disprove his theory the way he does it. God doesn't have to do anything. But if God if something happens, that's the Shemitah. Yeah. There's no way to disprove his theory because this is all just, like I said, the William Tapley-esque speculations and prognosticatings on his part. So here again is uh, Jonathan Kahn with uh, Pat Robertson from yesterday. There's still, you know, there's the seventh Shemitah coming up. There's a prophetic thing coming up as well. What is the seventh Shemitah? What is the, the seventh Shemitah is this, that every seven years was a Shemitah, but every seventh Shemitah yeah. ushered in a super Shemitah called the Jubilee. Right. And, we and at Jubilee, the main thing is restoration. Everyone Now watch what he does here. He's not going to speak with specificity and confidence that this is for sure. The, uh, the year of Jubilee. Watch what he does. You shall return to their own home. Whatever you lost, you get it back. You return right. to your home. Well, well, here's the thing. Could this, um, you know, Israel has lost its home 2,000 mm -hmm. years ago, right. lost its land. And we know, according to end-time prophecy, they had to come back. So this is, this is a, an end-time restoration. Could the mystery of the, the Jubilee or the Seventh Shemitah to actually give us the key of when end-time events happen? And the amazing answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Because here's what we know. We know that the Jubilee has to happen the year after a Shemitah. It's the 50th year after the 49th year, the seventh Shemitah. Okay. Yeah, that's for sure. And again, what year are the Jubilees again? You just admitted you don't know. And you and David Reagan were speculating as to when the Shemitah clock should reset so that we can start knowing when the Jubilees are. So here's the, here's the thing, Pat. In the 19th century, in the, well, the 20th century, 1917 is the year of the Shemitah. Mm -hmm. So the period right after that, that next year, that could be the Jubilee, is... Notice he said, could be a Jubilee could he didn't say it was he said it, he doesn't know when the jubilees are september 1917 september 1918 mm -hmm. in that time period after four centuries under islamic ottoman turkish rule yes. the land of israel all of a sudden the, the turkish empire collapses mm -hmm. the british empire marches into the middle east now now there had been a boy in the british empire who were praying every so you're going to tell us a story that that may show us when the jubilee years really were. Uh -huh. 
1918. Uh-huh. Every night, Lord, restore your land to your ancient people. Mm-hmm. He prayed it. Now it's coming true. The British Empire is moving in. The Jerusalem is falling. When Allenby, General Allenby, gets to Jerusalem, he finds it's abandoned. The Turkish soldiers heard the name Allenby, and they mistook it for Allah Navi, the prophet of Allah, who's going to bring judgment. So they took off. He's yeah. going there. He comes in with a Bible. Allenby was the little boy who prayed every night, Lord, restore your yeah. people. God used him to do it. So now the land of Israel goes to the British Empire. The British Empire issues the Balfour Declaration. First time in 2,000 years, the, the land of Israel is saying it's going to be a homeland for the Jewish people. This is Jubilee. Everyone shall return. So they start returning that this is going to be the land. That's in the exact period. Now, what happens if you fast forward to the next seventh Shemitah? Will okay. it give us another prophetic restoration? It takes us, it, it points. So this is him basically saying, I think we can sort of backwards engineer when the jubilee the mystery of the jubilee the super shmita is because you could fast forward 49 years and and ha oh, oh, oh. yeah um like i said it's he doesn't know when the jubilees are at all he's just decided on his own that uh because something significant happened in 1917 you know that uh, that is got to be some kind of a a key to understanding when the jubilees are. But he doesn't know when they are at all. Nope, he doesn't. And the calendar he's basing his stuff on was not put together by, you know, pre-Jesus Jews. It was post-Jesus rabbis who um, had, a let's say, an agenda to make sure that Jesus couldn't possibly fulfill the uh, prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Jonathan Kahn is pulling a fast one. He's arbitrarily set up his own t- dates regarding the Shemitahs and the Jubilees, and there is no way that he can actually prove that you know th- that this year, you know, that the year of Jubilee begins on September twenty third. There's no way he could prove it. He has no evidence, tangible, objective to support it. He's just basically made it up because he's arbitrarily decided to reset the Shemitah clock back to 1917 when the Turkish Empire falls apart and the Ottomans no longer control the Holy Land and the British take over. And um, yeah, so you're going to base a mystery of God's judgment upon a speculation regarding a, a year of Jubilee and Shemitah without any tangible objective way of saying yes the shemitah and the jubilees are on these years that's exactly what jonathan khan has done and that's why all of this is nothing but a con all right we're up on our second break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, a Bill Johnson sermon review. You don't want to miss it. We will be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... 
listening to Byron Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc. But simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engage stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. We are going to be listening to one doozer of a sermon from Bill Johnson. I mean, false gospel and everything. Let's do this right, though. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via bethel church reading california bill johnson presiding the name of the sermon we'll be listening to is the theology of jesus and the rising church think back to tuesday's episode with the new apostolic reformation and you're gonna see that uh, bill johnson is Right in league with those folks. It's a mess is the best way I can describe it. 
And, I mean, he makes very little effort to bring God's Word to bear. I mean, what you're going to listen to are just the theological prognostications of Bill Johnson, not biblical exegesis or anything that even remotely approaches sound biblical hermeneutics. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here is Bill Johnson in his sermon, The Theology of Jesus and the Rising Church. Here we go. Um, talking about, uh, we're in a, uh, the middle, actually, of a, of a series on the renewed mind. Certainly not a, a new subject for us. <clears throat> but uh, I've not talked to you about it, at least at length, for quite a while. The unrenewed mind is at war with God. The renewed mind actually enhances faith. Faith doesn't come from the mind. Yeah. Um, where in Scripture does it say the renewed mind enhances faith? I'd like to see that text, please. It doesn't say with the mind man believes under righteousness. It's with the heart. Faith comes from the heart. It's not an intellectual matter. But the renewed mind actually enhances the expression of faith because it receives understanding and revelation how God in his world works. It cooperates with and, and I, I believe contributes to the lifestyle of faith. And the renewed mind, the Lord is working to change us and to change us thoroughly. Thorough transformation of the human life can only come through a renewed mind. There are many people who have encounters throughout their Christian life, but even... Even being used in the miraculous does not ensure that there will be a renewed mind. It's what we do with the encounters that we have. Um, the disciples were guilty of experiencing uh, miracle after miracle after miracle, but still looking at life the same way. And the Lord is out to shift our worldview so that we live with a consciousness of God's world. I believe every miracle... Where is he getting any of this? We experience in life from our own personal conversion to seeing a friend saved to a miracle of healing, whatever it might be. Every activity of the supernatural, I believe, is to help us to have our affections anchored in a world we cannot see. The Lord is stirring us to get us anchored affectionately for a world we cannot see. Um, and he's not using his word for that? You think it has to do with supernatural experiences? Yeah, the Scripture nowhere says that. He's looking for a generation that he can entrust the world to. Uh, what? He's looking for a generation he can entrust the world to. Yeah, well, there won't be a single one of those generations coming up as long as uh, people are born dead in trespasses and sins. One requirement, love not the world. To oh, just one requirement, you know, and then God will entrust the world to a whole generation if they just don't love the world. Yeah, that's not going to happen because everyone's born dead in trespasses and sins. Have our affection seated in this world system, but to actually have it seated in his world to that generation, he will continuously unfold realms of influence, responsibility, authority, so that that world will have an effect on this one. Uh -huh. Again, which texts are you exegeting this from? The privilege of every believer. 
You can go through life as we do. You can go through life picking up certain Christian habits and disciplines. They're useful, they're beneficial, but in themselves, they do not necessarily bring about the renewed mind. The renewed mind really only comes about in the context of divine encounter. It's encounter. Ah, the renewed mind comes about through divine encounter. Again, biblical text for this, please. You just keep spinning all these weird ideas out without any biblical text that say any of these things. The Lord that changes us and our perspective. The renewed mind is at the heart of a transformed people. Just a quick reference uh, to our beginning verse, Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. Yeah, the scripture does talk about how uh, we need to have our minds transformed and renewed, and that's actually through the written word of God, not spiritual encounters. The part I want to make reference to today, I don't want to do a, a bunch of review today. The only part I want to jump on today is just the reminder that it's the renewed mind that transforms a life. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Be transformed, how? With a renewed mind. A renewed mind transforms people. Transformed people transform cities. And so the target of the Lord is to change life as we know it on planet Earth. The Lord has absolute full intention of backing His Word to any generation that will embrace it and commit themselves to live by it. Uh, again, biblical text for that, please. And how are you going to overcome the fact that every generation is born dead in trespasses and sins? His decree, his assignment to us, we have two absolute standards to draw from, probably dozens. But there's two that I'll make reference of this morning that, to me, are, are monumental. One is the standard of life, the approach to life that Jesus set on earth as it is in heaven. You bind here what's already bound there. That is the model. Misuse of both the office of the keys text as well as the uh, Lord's Prayer. This world. The believer pulls on the reality of that world until it collides with this one, and this one always gives way. Yeah, again, that's not what those texts mean. Assignment is to bring that world into this one. My destiny is going to heaven. There's a difference between my assignment and my destination. My destination is heaven, but my assignment is to bring heaven. One of the problems that if you read through history, church history, when there were great moves of God, uh, sometimes they were so glorious. I remember, I, I've told you this, so forgive me for repeating some of, some stories, but I was, I was so rocked at my, my uncle's 90th birthday party, uh, quite a few years ago actually, um, attending his 90th birthday party. And he had been a soloist for Amy Simple McPherson. My uh, other family members were uh, involved in that great outpouring. And were... In other words, Bill Johnson is the uh, direct fruit of Amy Simple McPherson's ministry. Mm-hmm. Line up uh, row after row after row of people that were on their deathbed, literally. And by the time the evening was over, every single one of them would be up and well and and I was listening to my uncle and actually some of his friends that had come to that gathering, to that birthday party. And uh, I was just eavesdropping. Um, I, was, I was just trying to suck as much 
glory from what they were carrying as I possibly could. So I just kind of wandered over and, and it was almost like they were having this secret meeting that nobody should know about. You know, it was just one of those, they sat at a table and they leaned over and they spoke softly. And, and this is like they got together to talk about the good old days. But these good old days were actually unbelievably glorious. And they leaned across the table and one of them said, it was like heaven on earth. Oh man, that got me. Because that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that. Heaven on earth. And somehow in that era, they had tapped into it. But if you look through church history, whenever, I don't want to say every time, but, but I think it's frequently, whenever they would break through into that realm where the unbelievable would happen so frequently, so commonly. Break through that realm. Huh? Where, is, where are these realm breakthroughs talked about in Scripture? Answer, nowhere. The manifest presence of the Lord would be in a gathering upon a people, upon a city even, upon a facility where it could be seen miles away. Whenever that started to happen, the affection of the church shifted from this is so glorious that the return of the Lord cannot be far away. And they would shift the focus from bringing heaven to going to heaven. And when that shift takes place... Notice he's exegeting a personal experience of a relative of his. Uh Uh-huh. You've chosen where to level off. It's, there's a real tension there because the affection is supposed to be we get to go to heaven. It's not supposed to be everything is here. That's the, that's the tension. But whenever that shift would take place, it would be like it was a leveling off place of a generation of people that were tasting of things that nobody before them had tasted of. So it's with that kind of a sober-mindedness that I I come to this subject again today because I know that in history there's never been a generation that experienced great revival and then passed it off to the next generation where it was taken to another level. It's always declined. And I, I believe part of the heart of this thing Sorry. Part of the heart of this thing is to get an understanding about the move of the Holy Spirit. An understanding not to entrap or to control or to direct or manipulate. Sounds so pious and so plausible, but none of this is actually based on any biblical text. Only to cooperate an understanding of the move of the Spirit where we can actually obtain a language for what He's doing. Because if we can put words to what's happening, we can train others to take it to another level. If we don't have a language, if we don't have an understanding of how God moves in a setting, while I may have that anointing on my life, you may have that anointing on your life, if we don't find a language for it, we will stop far short of God's intended goal to actually raise and to train up a generation to go to where we didn't have time to go. And so when, when, we, when we dream here, we dream with that ambition. We dream with that, that single, that, that sole desire to spend ourselves so that another generation 
could take it where we didn't have time to go. Because what the Lord has intended to do on the earth is beyond our wildest dream. It's beyond, it's beyond our greatest dream. It's beyond our strongest prayer we've ever prayed. It's beyond the reach of all those things. But we've got, we've got dual citizenship. We're citizens of this world. And, and when it talks about love, not the world, it's talking about don't love the system that is void of God's influence. It's obviously not talking about hating the planet or not loving people. It's talking about don't be attached to a system that is void of divine influence. Christ must be at the center or it is a world system. Christ must be at the center. He cannot be a casual outside influence. He must be at the center or it is a world system. We have dual citizenship in that we are privileged to live in this day, in this era, in this hour. There's trauma and crisis all over, but there's equal to the trauma and crisis. There's a significant outpouring of the Spirit that is just becoming worldwide. Things that I didn't know if I'd ever get to see in my lifetime, we now see uh, in a month and sometimes even in a week. Things that the Lord is doing that we've read about historically that are happening even right now. But this dual citizenship causes us some problems. Let's just let's just say for a moment that you uh, let's say that you're a diamond trader and you live in New York City and uh, you have to carry with you millions of dollars of diamonds with you at a given time. And so you go down to the police station, you apply for a gun permit to carry a concealed weapon for your safety, and so you go through the class that they provide. They approve you. You now legally can carry a concealed weapon in this country. If you are that diamond trader and you go on vacation into Mexico, that little piece of paper that gives you permission to carry a weapon doesn't work in that other kingdom you just went into. The laws of one kingdom are applicable in that kingdom. Notice, no biblical text, just one extrapolation after another after another based upon an extrapolation from an experience. Do not work in the other kingdom, in the other nation, in this sense. And oftentimes we live with world mind, worldview, and not even know it, hoping to tap into what God has promised in his word to his own hoping to tap into the resources of his world, to the anointing, the power, the realms of gifting, etc., to where we can truly make a significant mark on the course of history. But you can't use the rules of one kingdom to tap the resources of another. And the resources of this kingdom are completely different than what we're accustomed to. Yeah, I have no idea what he's talking about. This still bothers me that I'm so far away from the standard that Jesus set. I mean, it just so annoys me, to be honest. But I look at Jesus coming to a crowd, a multitude of people that are hungry, and he has a boy's lunch, and for him it was enough because he saw different. He saw a realm that he had access to in the immediate Many of us think... Oh, really? So the feeding of the 5,000 was Jesus seeing into a, a realm where there's more than enough? What are you talking about? No text describes what you're talking about. ...of the theory 
of unlimited supply, the theory, because we know someday Jesus's conviction for unlimited supply was not a someday attitude. It was a right now, it's about to happen attitude. And he gave thanks. And oh, I see. So we're supposed to bring heaven to earth. And that means that uh, we're going you know, to multiply food and stuff. Really? That's of the miracle. The Lord is working to shift that in us. And there are a number of things that he uses. He uses our history in the miraculous. That's why I just encourage you, if, if you're not getting breakthrough, partner with somebody who, who does. Get, get in the healing rooms and watch as the breakthrough comes week after week. Do, just do whatever you can. Uh, you know, I tell people all the time, just uh, this week I go, for example, down to Australia. Uh, I leave tomorrow. I haven't been there in 10 days, so I'm just lonesome for Australia, you know. <clears throat> it's just right around the corner. It's just right... Yeah, right on the other side of San Francisco. <clears throat> and I'll be doing a healing school with Randy Clark. It's one of my favorite events, and he's certainly one of my favorite persons. But go somewhere with Randy Clark to Brazil or something. But just get into the environment where you're exposed to miracles. But then realize when you get exposed to the supernatural, you become a steward of a realm. One of the most I become the steward of a realm when I become exposed to the supernatural. Uh huh. Yeah. Again, biblical text for that, please. Uh, I, I think rare. I think it's okay to say one of the most rare concepts that I know of uh, that that people maintain as a part of their life is this concept that when you experience something in God, that experience is actually an introduction to your inheritance. Okay, so when I experience something, that's an introduction to my inheritance, right? Again, biblical text for this teaching, please. You keep spinning all these ideas out of your head, but none of them are actually coming out of any biblical text. doesn't take us into an experience to tease us about what's going to be in eternity. He takes us in through a locked door into a realm in God, and we have an initial experience that we must now steward to come into more. So I have to steward the experience in order to come into more within the realm thingy. Uh huh. Right. Uh, biblical text again, please. I'd like to see that from the Bible. Much of what we need. We're to contend for and cry out for, but sometimes we get initial breakthrough and we wait for God to bring the increase. In his world, this world that we are having such a deep affection for built in our hearts, in this world, it works differently than in this world. In this world, resource is moved by human need. From political leaders to business leaders to church ministries to whatever, they they direct their resources according to, and I don't I don't I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but you've heard the phrase it's the it's the wheel that squeaks the loudest that gets oiled. When there's recognized need that has been vocalized, that's where the resources go. But that is in this world, not his. In his world, the guy who misused his one talent. It was taken from him, given to the one who had the most. Because in his world... Yeah, again, that's the 
that's from a parable of the talents. And that doesn't have to do with stewarding experiences and realms and things like that. Uh, you've completely missed the whole point of that parable. But then again, you're not really interested in exegeting the parable and telling us what it really means. It just seems like you want to find that one verse and then weave that into this stuff that is actually coming out of your head, but isn't actually coming from God's word at all. It's not human need that pulls on resource. It is faith. It is stewardship. It is using what God has given correctly. The power of speech is, is, is amazing. The decree, I was thinking about it uh, just uh, earlier today, that the Lord would actually withhold the realm of the miraculous in Isaiah 35. And it says that when you go to the brokenhearted and the troubled person and you, and you tell them, be strengthened, God's going to vindicate you. It says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Then the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. So here's this realm of the miraculous that is waiting for the stewardship of the knowledge of God put into decrees that are proclaimed over each other. And those decrees and proclamations actually attract the invasion of the miraculous. They actually attract. It's like you put a marker, a target for God. They, they attract the invasion of the miraculous. What are you talking about? Scripture nowhere says anything like this. Strike. But many people wait for God to show up to do something when he's already revealed to us his will and it's the decree that releases his will. See, his world just works differently than this one does. It works differently. And oftentimes people will, will do all kind, go through all kinds of gyrations to try to move God. He's so moved for human need that he sent his son. How much more moved does a person need to be? He paid the price for absolutely everything to get settled. The sin issue has been settled. The disease issue has been settled. The torment issue has been settled. Who owns the planet? That issue has been settled. All these things were, were taken care of at Calvary. Now to find a group of people that will... Notice he teaches the false doctrine that disease was atoned for by Jesus on the cross. Yeah, that's... Yeah, disease is not covered in the atonement the way he's describing it. That's a false teaching. Discover what was bought in that transaction and to move according to the laws of that world so that the dominion of God would be realized and his goodness would be experienced by our cities and our nations. It is the issue of stewardship of what God has given us. We need more, then how do you get more? You have to properly use what you have. There has to be that breaking of the cycle of this world system that quite frankly isn't working. Every miracle that the Lord brings about, I believe, is to anchor our affections in a world we cannot see. But he's working against... Now, we're all in the same boat here, so don't, don't take this with a harsh edge. Just I live with a painful reality that I can experience a series of miracles and then at the end of it still think, think the way I did before the miracle started. And the whole ambition of the Lord was to set me up for an experience of the glory, because miracles release glory, to experience... Miracles release glory, uh-huh. Yeah, again, which biblical text says that? Glory, so that there would be shift in perspective and thinking. 
So the miracles bring glory to have shift in perspective, right? No biblical texts teach any of this. Where is he getting this theology? When his disciples didn't change their way of thinking in Mark 8, he asked them, he says, can't you see? Is your heart still hard? Don't you perceive? And he would ask them these questions. I, I don't think he was angry at all. I think he was trying to pull them into their potential. I think he was trying to, he was trying to set the hook and say, come on, you're, you're allowing yourself to live here when what I'm showing you is up here. Come, come up higher. So here's two, the two absolutes that, that I, I believe has put such demands on my life, on our life. The one is the decree, the teaching, the word that Jesus gave on earth as it is in heaven. But the second is, is, the, is Jesus' life. Hebrews 1 says, in times past, God spoke to us through the prophets, but now he speaks to us through Jesus. What's the point? That message was for then. Jesus is for now. Yeah, that's not exactly the point that Hebrews is making. Hebrews uh, 1, verse 1 in the past, yeah, that's right, in the past, let me pull this up in the ESV, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our for, our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Uh-huh. Yeah. Where do we find the words of Jesus, by the way? Yeah, in the New Testament Gospels. That's where we go to find Jesus' words and teaching. And the prophets foretold him. He fulfilled the prophets. And they were the prophets were looking forward to him. He has now arrived. And he's spoken to us, notice past tense, in this sense, through his son. Without that shift, there is a constant reproducing of an anointing and a ministry that is not for today. What are you talking about? That is utter gibberish, gobbledygook, and nonsense. Yesterday's anointing is like yesterday's manna. And so this ministry of Jesus that dealt with every single person that came to him with affliction or torment, he ministered to them. That's the only standard to follow. I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. You refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. And watch what he does with this. This is a supreme twisting of God's word. We'll untwist it, though. So he refuses to you know, make you know, a theology of, that allows for sickness. Yet, you know, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, you know, who had frequent stomach ailments, have a little bit of wine, you know, to ease your stomach. That's exactly what Paul said. Yeah, boy, we continue. Now, here we got a problem. Only one. It's a small one. The Apostle Paul gives a warning in Galatians. And he says this. He says, if I, and he's the one who brought the gospel to them. He said, if I or even an angel comes to you and preaches to you a different gospel, you're to reject it. Yep, that's true. And the question is, what is the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached? Yeah, that, I mean, Paul's straight up says in Galatians, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one already preached, let him be damned, is what he said. 
And so what was the gospel that Paul preached? It's found, by the way, very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Paul writing to the church of Corinth says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Here it is. This is it. Ready? Which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So what is the gospel that Paul preached? Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the good news, the gospel that he preached. But what does uh, Bill Johnson think that Paul's gospel was? This is important because Bill Johnson is preaching a different gospel because he's not paying attention to what Paul said his gospel was. That's amazing. An angel shows up and he brings you a different standard, a different gospel. Reject it. He says, even if I come back to you and I change my mind, don't pay any attention to me. All right. What gospel is it? It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel of the kingdom. No, it's not the gospel of the kingdom. That's, by the way, gospel of the kingdom, NAR talk there, that the gospel of bringing heaven to earth. That's not what Paul preached. Paul's gospel is found in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What he's saying is patently false. He believes that Paul preached the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, bringing heaven to earth. That's not Paul's gospel. Bill Johnson, by his own admission here, preaches a different gospel. And therefore, by his own admission, he must be rejected. Okay. Let me illustrate. Paul refers to his thorn in the flesh, which has been interpreted by many as disease allowed or brought on by God. Yeah, and a lot of theologians think that it was probably an eye infection, an eye ailment. That's a different gospel. No, it's not. That is not a different gospel. The gospel that Paul preached is laid out very clearly by Paul. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures, was raised again on the third day. In accordance with the scriptures. Bill Johnson does not know the gospel that Paul preached, yet Paul clearly tells us what that gospel is. Bill Johnson's believing a false gospel. The gospel of the kingdom, you know, bringing heaven to earth. Jesus didn't model it, and he didn't teach it. And Paul said, you can't change the standard. That felt good. You guys all right? You know?
The responsibility of the believer is through the renewed mind to approve God's will. What? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Responsibility of the believer is through the renewed mind to approve God's will. What is this man talking about? Why are these people saying, oh, this is gospel truth? This is nonsense. This is repeat. But I think it's important for this context. Approve doesn't mean that God needs me to say yes before he goes through with something. What it does mean is the word actually describes one who thoroughly examines an item and finds it to be authentic. I'd like to suggest to you that any interpretation of Scripture that differs from the standard Jesus set needs to be brought into question. Don't approve it. Why? Because the standard is Jesus. Yeah, that doesn't make any exegetical sense. common now is different than five, ten years ago where most everywhere I go, regardless, I mean, I'll, I'll do a Lutheran conference, I'll do United Methodist Church, I do all these... Ver- yeah, any Lutheran church that invites you to speak to them is not really a Lutheran church, sorry. Places that not too many years ago... There was no such thing as miracles, as signs of wonders, as healing, as deliverance, massive conversions. None of those things existed in those arenas at that time, but now they do. And I'm, and I'm so thankful. But here's, I'm, I'm, in other words, whatever theological disease you have, you're spreading it like Ebola. Got it. Thankful, but I'm not satisfied. So here's, here's what I want to address. Every one of us who have prayed for the sick have had breakthrough and have had heartache. And what happens is we, in teaching healing to people, for example, it is assumed and we teach it. I I, I don't, but commonly in these circles now that embrace healing for today, it is commonly taught that not everyone you pray for will be healed. Why? Why do we teach that? Because that's our experience. If we did that with the subject of sin, we would actually teach people that a certain measure of sin is okay and it's to be expected. We don't teach our experience when it comes to sin. Everybody in this room has sinned. But we don't teach that. We teach what the Word says. Because that's the reality that we contend for. In fact, the first message in this series had everything in the world to do with that one thing. Even so, consider yourself dead to sin. Approach your own life as it's impossible for me to sin. 
It's not in my appetite. It's not a part of who I am. I have been changed. It's not that I can't. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Written to Christians, by the way. It's just that I can't do it out of the old nature because that nature has been dealt with. So if I'm not going to teach out of my experience in the realm of sin, that I equally owe you instruction not out of my experience when it comes to ministering to the sick. Now, the only people I know that have never had any disappointment in praying for the sick are those who don't pray for the sick. Yep, they're batting a thousand. And they have a lot of advice. I know painfully as most of you what it is to swing and miss, what it is to try our very best and not get the breakthrough. But that never becomes the place where we develop theology. What happens? what, What do we do there? Let me tell you something. Out of the goodness of God, one of the core values, I believe, in the Scripture, personally, I think it's the cornerstone of all theology, is the goodness of God. Everything comes from that. He is as good as He is holy. That from that cornerstone of the goodness of God, He has given us a promise. Out of Romans 8, verse 28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Why is that verse in there? That verse wouldn't even be needed if every time you made a decree or prayed or did your best, everything worked out perfectly. Because the Lord knows we are in process. But you don't build theology to enhance a a process that emphasizes our imperfection. The theology is formed around Christ. He remains the message. He remains the standard. I may not do it well, but it's the only job I have. There is no other purpose for my life. My life has no other purpose than to follow him and to make him known. No other purpose. There's no other reason. There is no plan B. There's only one. I have been assigned by God to represent Jesus in the world. He said, as the Father represent Jesus in the world? Man, that is an interesting and bizarre play on words. I send you. So we have simplified the entire focus and destiny of our life down to the one thing. I must be able to represent Christ in a given situation. Now, I do it better today than I did 20 years ago. I actually do it better than I did five years ago but it's not near what it's going to be. Put it that way. When we create a theology around what didn't happen, or we create a theology that allows for sickness, we change the standard of God. But here's where it really hurts the most. The ability to recognize truth when you hear it comes 
from an awareness of personal need. Let me explain this. One of the fascinating things in the Bible to me is to find who recognized Jesus for who he was when he came and who missed him. It's fascinating to me that the tax collector would climb a tree because he could see who he was. The prostitute had no problem. All these rejects of society knew exactly who Jesus was. The demonized, who was so tormented, actually ran at Jesus, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. He knew exactly who he was. Those who were trained in Scripture, most of them did not recognize Jesus when he came. The problem is not the training in the scripture. The problem is that religion insulates us from a realization or discovery of personal need. Blanket statement that doesn't quite make any sense, nor does it uh, make a distinction between the Pharisees, yeah, and the people who in Israel were religious and did recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. Because they had faith. Christian activity, busyness, can insulate us from the awareness of our personal need. If I create a theology that allows for disease to exist in a person's life, then I have religiously insulated myself from my awareness to press into God to get that measure of breakthrough that is needed so that this stronghold can be destroyed over this city. What is he even talking about? I'm telling you, it's religion that causes us to create theologies and doctrines, belief systems, practices that have nothing to do with the model that Jesus set. Which basically means what he's putting forward here is a religion because it really doesn't have anything to do with what Jesus said and taught. Jesus is the only model worth following. The responsibility to model, miss it when we do, and then not do the guilt-shame thing so we can get back up and model it again. If the enemy cannot stop me from pursuing authentic display of the purity and the power of Christ, if he cannot stop my pursuit, then what he will do is when it doesn't come together like I contended, like I thought, like I believed for, then to get me to turn inward to find some secret hidden problem that actually caused the failure of an answer or breakthrough. Yeah, that's quite a confession. Focus went from trusting in God to looking at me, and that's always disastrous. The answer is never to turn inward said the person who's the biggest mystic of them all. The Christian life is not complicated, but it is hard. (laughs) It's not complicated at all. He just wants to be first. That's law. Not gospel. Yeah, God does want to be first. You shall have no other gods before me. That's law. Simplifies everything. No, it doesn't. You tell me how I'm supposed to fulfill the law with a sinful nature, at least perfectly. To be first and have no second. (laughs) 
He just wants everything. And so Jesus gives us by decree and by example a life that is different than any life I've ever seen, including my own. Avoiding guilt and shame, what that does is it creates an awareness of need. What does an awareness of need do for a person? The scribes and Pharisees missed Jesus when he came. They were satisfied with their position, satisfied with their knowledge, satisfied with their training, their disciplines, how they had worked hard to please God. They had done all these things, and they had become insulated from a true discernment to recognize truth. The person who had put no time into it at all, but had been stealing money, pilfering, selling their body, doing all this stuff, they recognized him when he came because they all had one common denominator. They all lived with a painful awareness of their need. Sometimes the people that are most ready for absolute transformation are the people that we think are the most lost. And the reason is because they are positioned to recognize truth when they see it because they live totally aware of their need. Religion works to insulate us from that heartfelt need so that as the Lord brings greater encounters, more insights, practical experiences for us to extend this kingdom message deeper into people's lives, deeper into cities and nations, that, that somehow we would become divorced from that and become insulated so we don't have the kind of effect on the world around us that God has called us to. Living with awareness of need is a big deal in the kingdom. That's why it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Living aware of personal need. It's not like I, I, I need God because I'm going to hell. It's not because I need God because... You know, um, he's so distant from me. I hate the songs where he's a million miles away and I'm right here. I, I just don't, I, I can't get much closer than living inside of me. You know, I, don't, I don't know how much closer he can get. But what I need is an awareness of the presence that is upon my life. And filling my mind with the religious stuff deadens my awareness to truth and deadens my awareness to his presence. I've told you before, I try to live in such so a... So the religious stuff would be, you know, like God's word. Right. Yeah, that deadens me, apparently. Weird. Nothing ever gets bigger in my awareness. If I'm watching the news on TV, I hear a conflict or a problem with family or a friend or whatever... I have to guard my heart so that nothing ever gets bigger in my consciousness than my awareness of God's presence upon me. Once it starts getting bigger than my awareness of God's presence on me. Yeah, that God's presence on him, though, is experienced internally. Again, weird. Don't look inside. I'll live in reaction to that because I'm impressed by it. It's bigger. And I can't afford to have anything bigger than my awareness of the Spirit of God resting upon me. Once it gets bigger, I will live in reaction. But as long as I maintain the awareness of the purpose and the presence of God over my life, then that thing is not going to dictate the directions, the focus, the values of my life.
All right. <clears throat> I had a whole bunch of really good verses for you. <clears throat> I think what I'll do instead is just read one passage out of Acts chapter 10. He's just about finished with this sermon. Just about. Every reference to Scripture was out of context and not exegeted, just woven into the theology he was spinning out of his head and his experiences. One of my favorites. Mainly because I need a Scripture to make this legal. Torn spirit. Does that make sense to you? Living aware of... If somehow we can live aware of need for more without doing the guilt-shame thing, we will make one of the most difficult hurdles in history. I believe, I'm not going to get into specifics, but I believe one of the greatest revivals that I know of in history was, was never... That hurdle was presented, and they never made it over, and it collapsed and died as a result. To be able to recognize need without becoming introspective and self-condemning, self-judging, if we can't make that hurdle, we are not ready. Yeah, see, the thing is, again, condemnation has to do with sin. Knowing that you are forgiven in Christ, knowing the gospel, takes away the guilt and the condemnation. Why aren't you talking about that? God would like to release. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. I love that verse so much. Some of you have heard me tell the story that whenever I see on the clock, it's 1038. I just take a moment to pause and give thanks. Sometimes I'll declare the verse, I'll quote it, I'll ponder it in my heart. Jesus went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him. I just use it, I use it as a monument, a, a something to remind me of something greater, a sign that points to something greater. And here it is, the only standard worth following. Here's what I, here's what I cry for. I long for a generation to get a breakthrough, not just individuals. What we've seen happen in history is, is just, it's so extreme. It's so extreme. When you see, when you see an Amy Semple McPherson go to a city and have every hospital emptied by the time she leaves town. Yeah, I'd like to see the uh, actual tangible evidence and proof of that. Significant. That's significant. When you have a Catherine Kuhlman walking down the aisle of an airport and have people get up out of wheelchairs. That's significant. These things that have become common, com, become commonplace in the lives of some of the giants of faith. 
And I admire them so much. But I'm telling you, the heart of the Lord is that when he raises somebody up with an extraordinary anointing, it's not just to draw people to their ministry to become served. It's to become equipped that we can find language for that mysterious thing that God has put on our life so that we can then train up a generation to where what was an unusual high point of human experience would become the new norm as a generation that surrounds them becomes raised up into the same measure and realm of breakthrough. That breakthrough doesn't have to come because God showed up in your room and said, thus saith, and tells you what you can do. You can be trained into some of these anointings. The Lord will reserve. Yeah, again, Scripture, where does Scripture say any of that? It doesn't. And yet you talk about not doing theology from experience. Weird unusual divine encounter for another situation he wants to launch you into. But don't think you have to have the same experience. I've not had those experiences. That's what kept me out of this for so many years is I'd read about Branham and all these people that had these unusual encounters with God. I never. Yeah. Branham, uh, I think was a charlatan and he definitely was teaching false doctrine for sure. Fight for any of them. I never, never qualified. But, the, but it wouldn't leave the pages of the book. These signs shall follow those that believe. It just didn't leave the book. It stayed there. It stayed there. It kept bringing me back to that. Yeah, Matt, uh, I'm sorry, Mark 16. Yeah, the problem is that portion of it is not in the oldest manuscripts. Place till finally I had to realize that this, this theology that says God heals needs somebody that will live with risk and pursue it to the point of discomfort and inconvenience until a breakthrough comes, until a breakthrough comes. There was no experience. There was no voice. There was, I still have never been called into the ministry. <laughs> it may happen. It may not. I don't know. Okay, so you're preaching as a pastor without a call to the ministry. Wow, that's quite the confession. Until it does, I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing now. That's what I figured out. <laughs> I, I hear people with all these encounters where God called them. It just never happened. I, I was gone that day. I was gone that day. It would have scared me to death anyway. So, Here's what I'm believing for. You're, you're trying to do it. Chris is trying to call me into the ministry. I, I really appreciate Chris. That's awesome. Here's what I'm believing for. I know it's never happened. But I know that it must before the end. There must be not just individuals. I'm thankful. We have individuals that are rising up with such anointing, such strength. We have people scattered all over the planet right now that are just making a mess of things in all the right ways. We're so encouraged. But what I'm believing for is a generation. A generation will rise up with a corporate faith, a corporate anointing to press into realms because it's my conviction 
that as much as God put on a wood. Yeah, where in Scripture does it tell us to expect something like that? Or a Catherine Kuhlman or a Wigglesworth. He'll put far greater anointing on a company of people than he ever would on an individual. And to do that, there must be that corporate sense of we have to deal with the issue of obeying the rules of this kingdom to tap into the resources of this kingdom. We cannot take the gun permit across state lines and expect it to work. We cannot use the principles of this world and expect to tap into unlimited resource of the kingdom of God. That one works differently. The resource of that world works differently. And when I say resource, it may include money, but it's not what I'm talking about. In fact, just to deal with that, Jesus said that the stewardship of finances is what qualifies you for true riches. True riches is not more money. With natural riches, I could buy lunch for everyone in the room. With true riches, I could get one lunch and multiply it. Just like Jesus did, so he's expecting to multiply. For this generation to come up, for them to multiply stuff. Okay. All right. We'll end on that because before you start demanding loaves and fishes from me. Let's stand. I believe, I believe that this is a generation that could experience the greater things. That's the phrase that goes through my mind so frequently when I'm praying. The greater things. Somebody's got to see the greater things. I don't mean an individual, because individuals through history have had unique experiences. I'm not talking about that. I really believe that when the Lord brought these words, it was always a corporate word. It was not isolating one person, but it was talking to a generation. And before this thing's over, I believe that there's to be a generation with one heart, one heart, one voice that really don't care who gets the credit. You know, I tell the Lord all the time, God, I just want to be in the room. I just want to be in the room. When I see these fallen ones get up and try again, my, my whole theme is I just want to be in the room when their hair grows back. The unusual miracle that's beyond anything I've experienced. I, I want it to come forth for me, but I'll tell you, I'm happy to be in the room. I'm happy to be in the room. There's something about a corporate anointing that exponentially increases anything we say yes to. And so, Father, we pray. Done. Wow. I mean, none of that was sound biblical doctrine. That was absolutely frightening. And the implications of what he was saying are frightening. 
that these people sat there while he talked nonsense, made reference to rank heretics, you know, and, you know, and uh, talked about all these things he believed regarding a corporate anointing and all this kind of stuff. None of it is what scripture teaches. This generation that he's talking about that he wants to see, this is the generation that apparently is going to bring heaven to earth. New Apostolic Reformation, latter rain kind of stuff. And scripture does not teach any of this. This is rank heresy. And what does it do? It takes your eyes off of Christ, his word. Makes you, th- you know, if you're reading God's word and you know doing those disciplines that the Pharisees did or whatever, you know, then that's religion. Uh-huh. It's all about Christ inside of you. Right. Yeah, you don't draw your theology from your experience. Yet the whole thing is nothing but subjective and experiential. Absolutely frightening. And the Bill Johnsons of this world are extremely popular and gaining popularity throughout the uh, visible church when he should be rejected as a rank heretic and as a man who does not preach God's word or teach biblical doctrine, but teaches a theology that burbles up from within him, not from within the pages of Scripture. What do you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pyre Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. It's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.